This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Evangelicals have been told over and over again that to support President Donald Trump is to sell your soul. And before Trump was elected in 2016, there were a lot of Christians who voted for him but weren't entirely assured that he would prove to be a social and political conservative. Well, I think it's safe to say that those fears have largely been assuaged. And as my next guest says, President Trump in his first term has kept his promise to represent Christians. But how did it all happen? We're going to talk about it today with Ralph Reed, founder and chair of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and political strategist. He's out with a new book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. And Ralph, it's great to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Janet. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you tell an interesting story right at the outset of your book about your first phone call with Donald Trump. And I thought that was such an interesting story because it was several years before he actually threw his hat in the ring officially as a GOP candidate. Yes, it was. I, uh, he called, called me literally out of the blue. I had seen him interviewed on Fox News uh, that morning. Uh, I got a call from a reporter asking me what I thought might happen if Trump ran for president. And I said, in effect, that I thought he would get a very fair hearing from people of faith and that he might surprise people. And I don't know if Donald Trump got Google alerts or what. But about two hours after I gave that interview, before I had even seen the story posted, he called me out of the blue. I'd never met him before in my life. And he said, I wanted to call and thank you for the nice things you said. And I said, well, I wanted to thank you for saying on Fox News that you were pro-life, pro-marriage, pro-Israel and pro-family. And I said, look, if you're serious about running for president, you need to get to know the evangelicals. And of course, that was the beginning of, first of all, our friendship. But as I point out in the book, it was the beginning of one of the most unlikely, most bizarre, and most unbelievable changes in American politics in history, namely Donald Trump becoming president and doing so with 81% of the votes of born-again evangelical Christians. Absolutely. Just an amazing story. It is an amazing story. And this was 2011, right, that first phone call? Uh, That is correct. Right. So he had done this interview on Fox. He had aired these socially conservative views on the life issue and on marriage, as you mentioned before. Were you at all skeptical when you heard him speak in that way? Because as I remember back to that time, there were a lot of evangelicals who were on the one hand thrilled to hear Donald Trump saying that, but on the other hand saying, come on, it's Donald Trump and he's from New York and what this doesn't compute. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's right. And as I describe in For God and Country, you know, the, the critics, look, I, I uh, didn't write the book primarily to defend Donald Trump, although I do plenty of that. I primarily wrote it as a defense of the faith community. I have found uh, over the last three and a half years, maybe four and a half years, that evangelicals have been called spiritual frauds and hypocrites and phonies 
and they've said that they sold their souls for 30 pieces of silver. And I walked through the facts, Janet. I was there, okay? I was in the room. And the fact is that probably 90% of evangelical leaders either remained neutral or supported someone else initially for president. Right. And in the primaries, three-quarters of evangelicals supported someone other than Donald Trump. Uh, Mostly Mike Huckabee, Marco Rubio, uh, Rick Santorum, uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, Ted Cruz, of course, being the the second-place candidate among evangelicals after Trump. But once they were faced with a binary choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and I'm not saying Donald Trump is perfect, because we all are imperfect, and we all fall short of the glory of God. I'm not saying he's without sin, because we've all sinned and made mistakes in our lives. What I am saying is with a vacancy on the Supreme Court on Election Day, and with a choice between Donald Trump as a pro-life, pro-family, pro-Israel candidate, who pledged to appoint a conservative from a list of names that he released in advance, by the way, that had never happened before in U.S. history. Wow. Not I'll pick someone like this. He released the names. Uh, I think that in that circumstance, not only is what they did politically justified, I think it is morally and biblically justified, and it will be even more so when they do it again in 2020. Well, it's interesting because I've, I've seen exactly what you're talking about with evangelicals being raked over the coals for selling their souls to the devil or whatever hyperbole comes out of the, the mainstream right. media voices these days, anytime you turn on the channels. But it also has come from certain sectors of evangelicalism. And that's yep. been very disconcerting, I think, for a lot of Christians. We have the Never Trump con- you know, contingent. We have Russell Moore and his, his group of friends who are constantly scolding Christians. Christians that you are not holding to the same standards that you held to when you were criticizing Bill Clinton back in the 90s. How do you respond to that and and the way Christians have been attacked really from without and from within? Well, you know, I respond to it very directly in For God and Country. I mean, I respond to Christianity Today. Uh, I respond to the Christian Never Trumpers. Um, And, you know, I point out that... um, you know, when it when it came to the differences between Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, and I have a whole chapter on that, by the way, I go through the Clinton impeachment, and I point out that while some evangelical leaders called on him to resign or be impeached because of his personal misconduct, for the most part, uh, most evangelical leaders confined their criticisms to his crimes of obstructing justice, committing perjury, suborning perjury, conspiracy to destroy evidence, conspiracy to obstruct justice. These involved crimes as his job as chief law enforcement officer of the United States, using his powers to obstruct justice and to lie under oath. That is totally different than saying that somebody should be impeached because, you know, they they had a moral failing at some point in their life. Yes. And, and the, the point that I make, uh, particularly with regard to some of the allegations that have been made against Donald Trump, is I think we ought to have a presumption of innocence unless someone is proven guilty. I not only think Trump hasn't been proven guilty, 
I think it has been proven that many of his accusers are liars Mm -hmm. who have perverted justice themselves. That was true during the Russia hoax. It was true during impeachment. It was true during the allegations about Ukraine. And frankly, Janet, it's been true of allegations about his personal life as well. Well, that's right. And when you look at Mark Golley's editorial in Christianity Today, in which he was calling for the president to be removed from office, reading through that, what really stuck out to me was the fact that he was parroting what the mainstream media was saying about Trump uh, doing a quid pro quo and and committing obstruction of justice against all the facts. And I thought, well, this is the most politically blatant bias thing I've ever seen in my life. And what does that have to do with Christianity? If you're going to falsely accuse the man, what are you standing on? Yeah, and it, and it just didn't stand up to muster. I mean, you know, the, the we don't need to relitigate impeachment, but when Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU and others, testified, they admitted under oath in sworn testimony before the House Judiciary Committee that at no time did President Trump make the aid contingent upon anything. Right. Not upon an investigation of Biden, not upon a meeting. There, there was no investigation. They still got their aid. They still got their meeting. They still got the support of the United States. And by the way, you know, as with so many other things about the attacks on Trump, what is so truly outrageous about the lies told about him is that not only did he not do what he was accused of, he did more to support Ukraine in their hot and cold war with Russia than the prior administration did in eight years. He was the one who authorized uh, the, the, the missiles and the, and, and the defensive weaponry that, would, that were anti-tank missiles used against Russian tanks. What a good point. There's a lot more to talk about. Ralph Reed with us from the Faith and Freedom Coalition. His book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump, will come right back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's Word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Donald Trump swept into the presidency in 2016 against almost everybody's predictions, certainly the New York Times. But it was very interesting to see that 81 percent of evangelicals went for Donald Trump, despite some of the initial hesitation that Christians had. Is he really going to be a political and social conservative as he says that he is? Ralph Reed is joining us, founder and chair of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and author of Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Trump. Ralph, you were involved in talking to Donald Trump. He asked you, I know it one time to manage his campaign and then he put off running for president. But can you talk a little bit about Trump's intention to win over evangelicals by making a play for evangelicals? You talk about this in the book, particularly regarding Iowa before the 2016 election in 2015. What was his strategy? How did he go about winning over evangelicals? Well, uh, first of all, as I point out in the book, even though people accuse Trump of being, uh, you know, kind of like an unguided missile fired into the American political system, uh, he was, in fact, a very smart and capable candidate who not only mowed down 16 other highly qualified, outstanding opponents in the Republican primaries, but then went on to slay Hillary Clinton uh, in, in a race that no one uh, thought that he could win, yeah. uh, including many Republicans. And the way he did it, as I point out in the book, was focusing like a laser beam on turning out a record number of evangelicals and winning the highest share of that vote ever. He won that vote by meeting privately with evangelical leaders, and I described some of those meetings. Then in June of 2016, after he had secured the nomination, He held an unprecedented meeting in New York with over a thousand evangelical leaders. Uh, That meeting was off the record, and it was closed to the press. Uh, I described what went on in that meeting for the very first time, and he answered their questions, made it clear to them that he not only was pro-life, that he not only was going to appoint conservative justices to the Supreme Court and other judgeships, that he was going to be pro-religious freedom and pro-Israel, but he, but he said something in that meeting that I thought was even more important. He said, you all are one of the largest and most important constituencies in America today, but you're in danger of losing your voice. Hmm. And he said, I want to help you get your voice back, and I want to use the presidency to provide a platform for the faith and the values that I think America needs. And that was music to the ears of these evangelicals. And again, it's been a promise made and a promise kept. 
Well, one of the interesting things, and you touch on this in your book as well, is when Phyllis Schlafly came out and endorsed Trump, many people were shocked by this. Phyllis Schlafly, what's she doing endorsing Trump? She made the comment that she thought he was the closest thing to Reagan that she had ever seen. And it's interesting. I wish she were here to see how Trump's presidency has played out in the first term. But looking back on that decision by Phyllis Schlafly, do you think that she's been right, that Trump, in fact, is the closest thing to Reagan that we've seen? Well, you know, I I talk about that conversation because it was one of the more striking conversations that I had with a social conservative leader during the campaign. And Phyllis had been a friend of over 25 years and had been a mentor to me and it had inspired me for most of my public life. Hmm. And uh, yes, it struck me. And she went on to say, I said, how so? How is he like Reagan? And she said, Ralph, she said, Donald Trump doesn't necessarily know every single issue the way we do. You know, he's been a businessman. He's been a developer. He's been building buildings and golf courses. She said, but his instincts are right. And you can learn the issues. She said, the most important thing that reminds me of Reagan was the establishment hated him and he was anti-establishment. And she said, if he wins, he'll listen to us and not the establishment. Hmm. And that turned out to be true. And so again, you know, Phyllis saw something that a lot of people, including, by the way, Janet, we would have to say a lot of Christian leaders missed. Yep. And what we learned, it was, look, it was humbling for many of us because many of us thought the answer was what? To elect the most evangelical Christian candidate, yeah. right? right? That's what we thought. Right. What we found out was the most important thing was to have someone who the establishment opposed and who would not listen and take orders from the establishment. Because if they wouldn't take orders from the establishment, it meant they were more likely to defend and support the Christian community. Yep, yep. And that's been the case. What have you seen of all of his accomplishments being called the most pro-life president in history and his moving the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? There's so many things that we could point to the courts, two of the justices on the Supreme Court coming from President Trump's nominations. Is there any accomplishment that Trump has achieved that you would put above all the all the rest? Or would you say that, you know, there are a lot of things that are just even they're all awesome on the same level? You know, there are so many. And as you know, Janet, there's actually an appendix in the book that details all of Donald Trump's accomplishments, not just for the faith community, but for the country as a whole. And it's a very long list. But I would say, too, that uh, have the potential to be the most long lasting and were most impressive to me. The first is the two Supreme Court picks along with all the other judges. He's picked more appellate court judges and more judges in total than any president in three and a half years since George Washington. Oh, wow. And if he's reelected and gets more picks on the Supreme Court and, and hundreds of more judges, that will be his most important legacy. Right. The second, in my opinion, because I know how hard it was for him to make this decision, was when he withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Mm. When he took on his own State Department, in many ways his own government, and the foreign policy establishment of Europe, and said this is a bad deal, it's a flawed deal, it allows them to obtain a nuclear weapon, we're subsidizing them while we do it, and I'm out, 
when he did that, I said to myself, anything you need from me, you got it, <laughs> because that took a lot of guts, and uh, it took a patriot. It for did. him to do that. It did. It did. And I think going back to what you were saying earlier about being anti-establishment and being really for the people, that in many respects causes me to ask how Trump's views on Christianity may have changed since he entered office. Obviously, he was open to Christians. He understood what an important base that was, constituency. But what, what about his views on Christianity? Because there were people who commented about his remarks on communion and some of the other things that came up. Right. How, how does he see evangelicals? Like, how does it go the other way? We know how evangelicals generally feel about him, but how does it go from his perspective? Well, I can tell you this. This is not my first rodeo. I've worked on 11 presidential campaigns. I've been around multiple White Houses. Yes. Uh, faith leaders have had more access to this president and this administration at every level than all the previous presidents in my career combined. Hmm. Uh, Sam Brownback, who serves as an ambassador on religious freedom at the State Department, told me one time, he said, Ralph, I can't walk anywhere in any government building in Washington more than 25 feet without running into someone that I've worked with for 20 years or more. There are more conservatives, more deeply committed Christians serving at every level of government than probably all the others combined. And I think, look at the cabinet, deeply committed Christians like Secretary of State Pompeo, Secretary of Agriculture Purdue, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services Azar. I could just go on and on. Look at the White House staff. Look at his new White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. And I devote an entire chapter to the selection of Vice President Pence and his role in this administration. Yes. And if you look at the what the job he's done leading this coronavirus task force and the way the president has lavished him with praise and support, you know, the answer to your question in many ways, Janet, is found just in their relationship. <laughs> you know, the vice president has told me that they pray together. It's very clear the president trusts and loves him and that the feeling is mutual. And I would just say this. Look, I'm not the president's pastor, priest, or rabbi. I'm not his spiritual advisor. There are others who perform that role. But I will tell you this. You can tell a tree by its fruit. And if he were not someone who had respect for Christianity and the role that it played, particularly at a moment like this during this pandemic, then why is he constantly selecting people like this? Yes. And why is he constantly surrounding himself If he was who his critics and attackers said he was, he would never want to be around those people. True. So I think it's just another example of him proving that the critics are wrong. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's very true because it's one thing to stand up and and call for people to vote for you. And it's another thing to pack your administration with Christians. That says a lot. Yeah, that says a lot. How do you feel about going into the election? Everything is up in the air right now, obviously, with a coronavirus pandemic, the shutdown. A lot of things are unknown at this point. But the left would certainly love to weaponize this moment against Trump in order to derail him. How do you see things going right now? Well, you know, I was on a call the other day uh, with some other Christian leaders, and I I made the point on that call, which I'll make now to you and your audience, which is anyone who tells you what's going to happen in November and how we're going to come out of this coronavirus, first of all, as an economy, financially, as a country, much less politically, 
uh, believe me, they're making it up. Yeah. I mean, they, it's not knowable. But I will say this. I think the president has done an extraordinary job during this crisis. Uh, I think he's rallied the country. He's united the country. He's put our health first, but the economy and jobs second. And I think people appreciate that. I think the fact that he said he wanted to see the country open by Easter, even though that wasn't achievable, showed his heart and showed the burden of where he wanted to take the country. And I think if we can get if we can come out of this thing and get back to work and get back going again, uh, I think he's going to be in very strong shape heading into the fall campaign. Well, there's a lot to pray for. For God and Country is the name of the book by Ralph Reed. So good to talk to you, Ralph. Thanks a lot for being with us. You bet, Janet. Thank you. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this break. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Police in Cincinnati have just arrested two men after seizing 70 pounds of cocaine, which sounds like a lot, and it is. But it was just last year, if you'll remember, that federal authorities in Philadelphia seized nearly 20 tons of cocaine from a ship that was owned by J.P. Morgan. Cocaine is deadly big business, and my next guest says there's more of it around than ever before, killing more than any soul could count. So, why can't we seem to win the war on drugs? Journalist Toby Muse examines it while also taking a look at the human side of the trade in his new book called Kilo, Inside the Deadliest Cocaine Cartels from the Jungles to the Streets. And he joins us now. Toby, it's great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. You took this firsthand journey into Colombia's drug cartels. What is it like to be inside these cartels? It sounds like very dangerous work, but also it revealed a lot. Yeah, by the time I wanted to write this book to really give the reader the sense of what it's like to be in the middle of the drug war. And what I ended up thinking was, describe it as, it's like being in a casino and you have that feeling of everyone around you. There's that electricity in the air. Everybody's winning money. The sex on tap for everybody around. But at any moment, someone could step up and put a bullet in your brain. That's what the cocaine trade feels. It kind of drives on this kind of idea of glamour. It recruits young men and women into its ranks. But it can be this vicious, merciless trade. And as soon as no one, as soon as you've lost your use for the cartels, you're immediately tossed aside. Goodness. What, what do you think Americans need to know about the drug trade, in particular, these cartels, how they work and, and the human toll that it takes on the people who are involved in it all? Well, I think the big picture I would like people to take away from is just to see that what our approach of this military approach that we've had for the past two decades trying to militarily destroy cocaine is not working. I'll give you an example. About 20 years ago, well, exactly 20 years ago, President Bill Clinton had his plan Columbia. This was $7.5 billion. And it was with the aid of the European Union. And the idea was to destroy cocaine in Colombia. Now, the goal was within five years to see a reduction of in 50% of the coca crops. Now, these are the bushes that produce cocaine. 20 years later, we've got more cocaine than ever before. The Colombian government has just now 
announced its new next goal. By 2023, it wants to cut coca crops by 50%. Mm. We just constantly move in these circles and we never kind of, we never move forward. And But in the meantime, countless young men and women across Latin America are dying because of the fantastic wealth to be made because of the black market in cocaine. Right. But you say the world has failed Colombia. In what way is that the case? Because you've discussed, for example, this failed peace process between the rebels and the Colombian government and all of that political intrigue. How does that play into the fact that cocaine is bigger than ever? Indeed, because just as the world can say to Colombia, why are you producing more coca than ever? Colombia should be asking the world, why have you done nothing to address the demand for the drug? Hmm. This business thrives on demand. It's the world's wealthiest countries in the United States, Europe, buying cocaine in the poorer country. So, of course, people are going to respond to that demand. And that's what we're seeing. And I think the Colombian government is justified in wagging its own finger and saying, you need to take care of demand. Because I don't really see any genuine program that's successful in cutting demand. Maybe I've missed one in the United States or in the European Union. I know we have these ongoing demand reduction, but it's not really chipping away at demand in any kind of meaningful way, I would say. And I think the statistics on arrests and overdoses uh, support that. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that was what struck me when you talk about the more that cocaine is destroyed, the more the value of it rises and that fuels more drug trafficking. And you can see that if there's not a demand, then people are not going to rush to provide the supply. But how in the world can governments address demand? Because you're talking about an individual choice of people who want to do cocaine. How do you even begin to address that, at least governmentally? Perhaps the solution is not entirely with the government, but do you see any way through in order to address the demand problem? Unfortunately, I, I, this is not my ex, uh, area of expertise. I'm not sure what is, would be a successful way of reducing demand for drugs. I know governments have tried. I'm old enough to remember Nancy Reagan, just say no. Yes. Was, it, was it successful or not? I'm not sure. I think there are, I, I think, you know, speaking of kind of, since basically the beginning of any sort of literature, there has been this kind of desire among some people to kind of momentarily lose consciousness. If you go back to reading the ancient Greeks and they'll talk about drinking too much wine. Now, I'm not comparing cocaine to wine, but there is just seems to be that natural human need amongst certain people for that. So to tackle that demand, it's very, very difficult. And as you say, every time we destroy cocaine, well, you've limited the resource, so you've made it even more expensive. So you can get these astronomical figures. A kilo of cocaine in Colombia will set you back about $1,600. If you get that kilo to New Zealand, that is now up to around $240,000, $250,000 for that same kilo. What other business on the planet gives you that sort of return. Right, right. Well, and you talk a lot about the toll that it takes on these, you know, everybody involved every step of the way along the drug trafficking route. But what would you say the toll of cocaine is taking on our country? Well, I think um, I think the drug war has played out here as well. I know that um, minority communities say that there's been excessively heavy policing. And then in the name of the drug war, there's arrests have gone up in terms of drug ownership. I think there's parts of the country, certainly during the 90s, when there was a real crackdown, many communities were devastated by just how many people ended up in prison. Hmm. And I think that is a 
a legacy of this drug war. So the drug war is not just only causing harm in Latin America where it's produced, but I think it's also doing something to ourselves back home. It's an increasingly militaristic approach to our, towards our own citizens, which I don't think is healthy in the long run. I think we've kind of lost that idea of, you know, the government and the local authorities working for the citizenry, all in the name of the war on drugs. It turns the citizen into an enemy. And I think that's, that's hard to move forward in a democracy once you have that kind of uh, that dichotomy, if you will. Right. That's a huge conundrum. You also spent time with the Coast Guard, and I thought some of the details regarding the drug trade and the effects of it on the Coast Guard was fascinating. Can you speak to that a little bit, what you learned about what the U.S. Coast Guard goes through in trying to deal with smugglers and, and getting rid of cocaine that is trying to get into the country? Absolutely. So I went out with the Coast Guard, and I'll admit my ignorance. I assumed that these were old men and women in these kind of navy blue blazers, big white beards, looking out over storms and volunteer force jumping into a boat to rescue some sailors in distress. (laughs) No, this is a highly effective, highly well-trained, increasingly militarized force. Um, Since 9-11, they've become much more militarized as they've taken on the role of really protecting the waters all around the U.S. to stop things coming in. And they have this phenomenal job where they're out in the eastern Pacific, one of the emptiest spots on the world. It really does feel like the edge of the world. And they're in these three-month missions taking down these huge uh, shipments of cocaine. They joke when they're out there that if they find anything less than half a ton of cocaine, they're disappointed. I was there, they were taking down one ship with four tons of cocaine. Mm. You know, that's millions and millions of dollars. And these men and women really, uh, you know, I was very impressed by the Coast Guard. These missions are three months long, as I say, um, and I think they're seizing and destroying more cocaine than anyone else. Uh, But again, they also kind of know that a lot of the cocaine's getting through. I was on one cutter called the James. There's usually about four to five cutters in the Eastern Pacific. One of them um, compared it to me and said it feels like um, if you, given the vastness of the Eastern Pacific, it would be like four or five police cars patrolling the the continental United States. Oh, man. That's how vast that's... um, that space is out there. It, is the cocaine coming in bigger numbers in terms of kilos uh, via sea or is it coming across the border more often? I mean, how much is coming across by land as opposed to by sea? Well, the cocaine is actually being dropped off. So it's leaving Colombia. It's going to the vast majority, as I say, the Eastern Pacific, the biggest cocaine corridor on the planet. But where that corridor ends, it starts in Colombia and Ecuador, but it ends actually in the Mexican-Guatemalan border area. I I haven't traveled there, but I've been told by various officials it's this notoriously lawless area where the Mexican cartels are thriving. It's then received there, and then the Mexican cartels will get it across the border via land. That's terrible. Well, you've got to check out the book. It's called Kilo, Inside the Deadliest Cocaine Cartels from the Jungles to the Streets. Toby Muse with us. Toby, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. You take care. We'll be back right after this. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real life true story of chart topping singer Jeremy Camp. I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Rick Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. 
More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is creating funding difficulties for many of Preborn's clinics with canceled events which help fund the clinic operations. All the while this is happening, our clinics are seeing more and more women in unplanned pregnancies call us as sheltering in orders have generated more unplanned pregnancies. Our call center is flooded with girls calling. Can you help us in this time of increased need? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To help a mom in need choose life, call now. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now. 855-402-BABY. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I was thinking about Galatians 5, 13 and 14 this morning. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have heard a lot of people referring to you shall love your neighbor as yourself in recent days because there is this debate within Christendom, I shall say, um, about whether or not churches shutting down is a matter of religious liberty and religious conscience, which it absolutely is, that hasn't changed, or if it is wise, as most churches have decided, to heed the government's recommendations that we cease to meet as groups in church buildings until the worst of the pandemic has passed. And by the way, there's some encouraging news along those lines. The deaths that were estimated have uh, gone way down. And that's, you know, that's very good news. They've been estimating that it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200,000 deaths, maybe a little bit more than that. And it's been reported now that, in fact, those numbers are not as high. The, the Hill has reported this. A key forecasting model used by the White House has revised its prediction of COVID-19 deaths in the United States, now estimating a peak of 60,415 by early August. This was a model created by the Institute for Health Metrics and evaluation at the University of Washington. So that's good. I mean, we want the estimation, not just the estimation, but the actual number of deaths to go down, way down, way down, way down. We don't want anybody to die from this. But to see those numbers, that gives us some encouragement. But there's this back and forth between Christians on whether or not churches closing down is good or bad. Now, one of the people who has been front and center on this issue is this Reverend Tony Spell. I had played some cuts from him just recently, he is the pastor at Life Tabernacle Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he has been very adamant about keeping his church open. And I think he actually was arrested along with Rodney Howard Brown in Florida. So he continues to hold to his position that you need to have in-person church and it doesn't really matter what the government has to say. But now there is this interview that's come out from, of all places, TMZ, which normally 
does Hollywood types of interviews, but they were fairly outraged with what Tony Spell had to say in this interview. The headline on the story is, if parishioners die after contracting COVID-19, it's a sacrifice for God and freedom. This is how they're summarizing this interview. But I want you to hear a little bit of it for yourself. This is cut one. What about the percentage of people who don't survive then? Whatever that percentage is, you know, what would you say if in the future one of your parishioners did die of coronavirus having come to one of your services? Would would you say feel like you have blood in your hands or not? No. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for God is with us. Then he said, fear not for I am with you. And then the Bible teaches us to be absent from our bodies is to be present with the Lord. So like any revolutionary or like any zealot or like any pure religious person, death looks to them like a welcome friend. Okay, that is twisted. I'm sorry, but that is twisted. It's one thing to say, would you feel blood on your hands if anybody in your congregation during the normal course of life died? Then that answer would make sense. Well, no, because the wages of sin is death and we all die and the Lord is with us and all the rest. But the, the ending point is even weird. Death is never a welcome friend. Death is the enemy. Death is one of the last things to be destroyed. Isn't that what Christ died on the cross for? Here we are coming up on Good Friday. That's what Christ died on the cross for, was to defeat sin and death. Death is the enemy. And I think we're so much in this culture where we have to celebrate people's lives after they die, right after they die. We're supposed to celebrate. I'm Count me in the category of people who can't stand that. I can't stand that because if somebody I know and love dies, I'm going to cry and I'm going to grieve and I'm going to mourn and I do and I don't want to throw a party. That's weird to me. I'm not saying that people don't deal with death in different ways, but the Christian should never welcome death as a friend. Death is not a friend. Going to be with Christ, he's our friend, and we are excited about going to heaven and having eternal life. But I think this is just, he's kind of skirting over all the bigger issues here, because if you're inviting people to come and gather in large numbers when there's a pandemic and the government has warned you not to do it, do you not bear some responsibility? Now, Tony Spell doesn't think he does. Now, listen to the next cut. Listen to cut two. You're saying that you, they wouldn't mind if they died? True Christians do not mind dying. They fear living in fear. So you're saying... of their convictions. You're saying that um, you think that your parishioners would prefer to come to the service and potentially get coronavirus and die than not come to the service and be fine people that can prefer disgrace to danger are headed for a master and deserve one. People that prefer tyranny over freedom do not deserve freedom. People have been locked in their homes for 23 days now like prisoners. The only vent that they have to their emotion is coming to the house of God and worshiping like free people. Okay, I, I have so much to refute here in that particular quote because he's all over the map. He, he basically is saying that you should not fear death. You should fear preferring disgrace to preferring danger. And, you know, that's that's better. You should prefer disgrace to danger and you should prefer you should not prefer tyranny to freedom. In other words, you are giving up your religious liberty if you don't show up at his church this weekend. I, it's ridiculous. 
It's ridiculous. I know that we all have different views on when the churches should open back up and the degree to which we meet and socially distance and all that. And that's fine. But to say that you prefer tyranny to freedom if you don't go to church during a pandemic is a reckless remark. Not to mention the fact that he says you can only vent your emotions if you come to church because you've been locked in your home. I haven't been locked in my home. I've been home. We've all been home like everybody else. But I have to go grocery shopping and I have to pick up prescriptions and I have to do things like that. I haven't been totally, I've been walking the dog with my husband. So I'm not locked in my home. He, he's not really representing the situation, honestly, because we're not locked in our homes. We're just minimally leaving our homes and we're doing it willingly. The government is not holding a club over our heads. We're doing it willingly. When we don't have church for a temporary period of time, that's using wisdom. It's not a permanent condition. All of us would object and all of us would rise up if the government tried to say, like Bill de Blasio wants to say, we're going to close your churches permanently. No, no way are you going to close our churches permanently. But for a few weeks, here's the, here's the flip side of this. If you leave your home too soon and nobody really knows, not even the epidemiologists necessarily know what's going on or Fauci. Dr. Fauci may be very, very admired, but he doesn't know everything either. If we do leave too early and then the deaths spike up again, does anybody want that? And then we're all in more severe lockdown for many more months and then people lose their jobs. We know that there's a human toll beyond just the coronavirus health issue. It it takes a toll on the economy and on people's lives and their ability to pay their bills for crying out loud. Is that not part of the whole thing as well? So it's not that simple. Here's something else that was addressed. Worship on the Internet. This is cut three. Why can't they just do it on Zoom or something? Why can't they do it like we're doing it now, just on Face? That still works. God's everywhere. It does not work. If it worked, then why did America spend billions and billions of dollars on churches? But then hypothetically, in one month's time, if one of your parishioners has died of coronavirus, what do you have to say to their family who's watching it right now? I have to say that they died like free people fighting for their convictions. People die in my church of cancer, HIV, AIDS. But this is preventable. This is preventable. Well, who knows what is preventable? Scientists. Scientists do. And scientists need to know that God gave us a strong immune system. And the only way we're going to destroy this virus is for, they say everybody's going to get it. Then if everybody's going to get it, then let's get on with life. Okay. It's interesting because yesterday I was speaking on the show about one epidemiologist who does believe that the better thing is to try to develop herd immunity. So we should be getting out of lockdown and we should be able to associate with one another. And there's an argument to be made there. But what he's really saying is we can't worship on the Internet because we spent billions on churches. That's not even a response to the question. Most churches, well, I wouldn't say most, but a large number of churches were here before the Internet. So they didn't spend all of that money building churches because of the Internet. The Internet didn't exist prior to, you know, the late 90s. So, you know, what that's not, what is this argument that he's making? I think when it comes down to it, he wants to have his church open. For whatever reason, he sees this as the ultimate way he can express his religious liberty. But I'll tell you what is really scary to consider. And that is, what if somebody in that church does get coronavirus? And what if somebody in that church does die? Are you really going to rejoice and say that person died, a free person? It's so cold and it's so, I don't know, just insensitive and lacks love of neighbor. And I'm not a communitarian. I'm not a socialist. I'm none of those things. But there is a reason that we should be taking into consideration the well-being of those around us because they matter to God as well. And I think somebody like this is just 
wonderful for the media. They eat this stuff up. See these crazy Christians? See how crazy they are? They don't love us. They're not really pro-life. They don't care about our lives. Well, most Christians do care about your life if you're not a Christian. That's why we're suspending services and worshiping at home for now. Thanks for being with us. We got to go. We'll see you next time here on Janet Mefford Today. This hour of Janet Mefford Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles. And today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.